Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Health Law Rundown, the definitive healthcare law podcast for healthcare companies and practitioners. I'm your host, Matt Ulrich, a healthcare attorney at the law firm of Kaplan & Ernest in Boulder, Colorado. This podcast is sponsored by Kaplan & Ernest. Kaplan & Ernest was founded in 1969 on the principles of respect for clients, well-researched legal solutions, a team approach to problem solving, and fair pricing. Today, those principles are alive and well as the firm provides a broad range of legal services and work with educational institutions, healthcare organizations, large corporations, small businesses, and individuals to help them make informed legal decisions and to thrive. Okay. Uh, How's that sounding? We're recording this episode on Monday, July 10th, 2017. And today's topic is going to be a hypothetical. We decided to do a hypothetical on essentially anyone licensed by the Colorado Medical Board or Nursing Board to do a hypothetical on them because we received some good feedback on our first podcast in which we did a hypothetical on HIPAA and social media. So we decided to do another hypothetical for this, our fourth episode. And with me today to help discuss that hypothetical, I have two great attorneys that I have the pleasure of working with every once in a while here at Kaplan and Ernest in Greg Linquist and Cheryl Bridges. Uh, hi, guys, and thanks for joining us. Do you guys want to give a little bit of an introduction about yourselves? Uh, my name is Cheryl Bridges. I do a lot of healthcare professional licensing and medical malpractice defense and um, everything related to the healthcare field as far as if you have a practice, you have employment issues, that kind of thing. But a lot of licensing in front of the medical board and nursing board, which is um, our focus today. So I work in the healthcare fraud, abuse, and regulatory compliance area um, with some specific experience in uh, Medicare and Medicaid enrollment issues and kind of rolled into that are um, revocations, uh, exclusions, deactivations, and kind of what we would call the derivative consequences of um, kind of getting into trouble with either any of the board or, or the uh, courts. So um, well, I'm excited to share some of those thoughts today. So we'll uh, we'll set the stage then for everyone listening here. And our hypothetical today is when you are a licensee under the Colorado Medical Board or Nursing Board, and you are charged with a crime of some sort, and and what you would do in that scenario, and, and what steps you should be thinking about. Um, from a healthcare perspective, none of us are criminal attorneys, so we're not going to uh, get too um, in depth on that issue. But uh, this is coming more from uh, the healthcare side of things. So I think we'll just jump into it here. So I think the the kind of big picture interesting thing about this is is kind of what Matt mentioned right at the beginning is we aren't criminal attorneys, but because we are dealing with a conviction or at least a charge that could potentially lead to a conviction, um, that does require another area of expertise. And so what I would say is, from my perspective, if, if I'm the attorney that's handling the uh, implications, as we would say, with uh, Medicare billing and enrollment issues or Medicaid, is I'd want to be in touch with that criminal attorney very early because there are a lot of uh, downstream consequences that can come out of any sort of charge or plea and depending on what that individual may ultimately plead guilty to or be convicted of, 
it can have a varying range of consequences on their ability to continue to be a participant in the Medicare or Medicaid programs. And I think that having that kind of um, back and forth with, with a criminal attorney is we could, and this has happened, is before the, the uh, plea was actually entered, we were able to talk about, okay, what is worst case scenario by taking this particular misdemeanor compared to a different one? And there, there actually were some um, differences. And ultimately, we, we recommended taking a, a certain one so that an individual could keep practicing. But that being said, a lot of what we see probably too often is that the conviction um, or plea happens without ever any consultation with the healthcare attorney. And by then our hands are already tied um, because we can't really give any input or we can't really give any advice into what ultimately may uh, come out of that. So from my perspective, the very first thing I'd wanna know is, hey, have you actually entered a plea? Have you been convicted? And if not, you know, we wanna make that connection with the, the criminal attorney. From a licensing perspective in front of the medical board and nursing board, I definitely echo those sentiments. It's really important to know where you are in the criminal process and as the healthcare attorney helping you, I want to know what admissions you've made in the criminal context, what plan uh, your criminal attorney thinks is going to put in place or thinks might happen as a result of any conviction or plea. And then we have some tools on our side that may or may not help with the uh, criminal matter. Um, and I'll, I think I'll touch on those a little bit later, but we just kind of want to know what's going on. And down the road in front of the medical board or nursing board, there might be some stipulations and admissions. And I certainly would want to run those by a criminal attorney before I recommend that my client agree to them. But also from the licensing perspective, one of the first questions you need to ask is whether this is something that should be even reported to the medical board and nursing board and how that gets reported. The lawyerly answer is that maybe, <laughs> but but it's more likely probably. Um, most of the time, very, very frequently, I recommend it get reported. And that's partly because even if it's not technically something that has to be reported, it is probably something that's going to come up when you renew your license. The questions that are asked on your license renewal um, are very broad. And it seems the board is generally just happier if you brought it to their attention than if they find out about it six months, one year, two years later on your renewal application. Um, so, yeah, I would echo get criminal counsel on board and get in touch with your healthcare attorney and kind of evaluate what needs to be reported to the board and in what context and how. And I think, uh, I mean, this is kind of a good point to, to mention the, you know, there are potential board reporting reasons or requirements that Cheryl just mentioned. But at the same time, you do need to think of there could be enrollment requirements, you know, uh, notification requirements under your enrollment application. Because a lot of times we see for Medicare or Medicaid that they'll say, you know, something may qualify as what they call, you know, an adverse event which under your agreement to provide services for Medicare or Medicaid beneficiaries, you may be required to disclose those. So it's the, it's the same kind of thinking. All this goes pretty f quickly and you may find yourself in more trouble by not reporting to the board on time or to the actual uh, regulators themselves. And I think that's probably the 
crux of what we're talking about today is to understand that if you have a criminal charge against you, there might be downstream consequences depending on what type of plea you take or if you're convicted and what the sentencing terms are. And it's always easier for us to deal with those up front and understand what the ramifications will be so that we can help you down the road. You know, we have tools at our disposal. For example, we might say if you take this course, it might help you in front of the medical board. But let me talk to your criminal attorney. Maybe you're already required to do something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to know that there might, even if it's a one-time DUI, there might be um, ramifications downstream and it's always easier for us to front load the report than to have to deal with it on the back end. Right. We want to be able to deal with those ahead of time, think about it, strategize. So definitely you need to coordinate with your healthcare attorney and criminal attorney. They need to be coordinating right away at the very beginning need to be thinking about the process and steps and downstream consequences, like you guys said. So there are reporting obligations. We kind of touched on those a little bit. Do you guys, did you want to add anything to kind of the reporting obligations? Just be aware of the time frame. Um, you know, the nursing board has a pretty strict time frame. The medical board has a policy or rule that talks about the time frame, and it depends on what the charge is or the conviction or the sentencing. But, you know, I would just say don't delay. It's certainly harder for us to deal with something the best way possible if we have two days notice before a deadline versus right when it happens. Right. And it gives you time to tell your story, right? You can frame it how you want to frame it instead of reactionary. I would yeah. Imagine. It, a lot of times uh, you see that the, the government, for lack of, you know, it's not always their fault. I mean, I actually used to work at the government, so I know that sometimes they just don't uh, they have to make decisions on incomplete information, and they don't always mm-hmm. know it's incomplete. Right. So if you're able to, like you said, it's kind of like a PR thing, kind of. You know, you want to get your uh, facts and circumstances out there so that you put yourself in the best position to be able to uh, right. come out with, with a kind of good result. But it, it is something that Cheryl mentioned that half the time we get providers who all of a sudden turn around and they say, wow. I didn't even know I had these obligations. Yeah. So half the time they think they've they've pled guilty, they've done whatever community service, they've gotten in front of the board and they think it's over. And then all of a sudden, a year or two later, something comes up with their billing privileges and they're always shocked. But really, I mean, it's just that there's a lag sometimes in what, you know, uh, the government can actually get to. So on one side, it's not even knowing that there's obligations, but then Another one that we've seen come up is they do get in front of the board and then, you know, they handle that issue, but then they don't realize that because they had some sort of action in front of the board, that itself may become a reportable event for billing privileges. So regardless of what kind of stage they're at, there can be uh, new obligations that arise depending on what actually happens. That makes sense. That That continually are coming up. So, and, and Cheryl, I think you kind of both touched on this a little bit. And if you if you don't report, there are circumstances in which they the government might find out whether it's through forms, um, renewal of licenses or applications that you have to fill out or recertifications under Medicaid or Medicare. So it's better to get out in front of this and, and to meet your obligations ahead of time. I don't always recommend that, but. Most frequently, I do recommend that you do a self-report. It might depend on when your renewal is up and that kind of stuff um, in in connection with the timing of the charge. But I'd say very, very frequently, almost 100% of the time, I, 
we start the process, getting the process going um, immediately as soon as you come to us. Assess, okay, are there options we have to make sure you're in a better position when the board evaluates this? Um, we, If you come to us after what we perceive to be when you should have reported to the board, then the assessment is, okay, is there stuff we should do before we report since we're late anyway? Um, or should we wait to the renewal, which right. is usually not what we do. But so there are just considerations that way. And if you Wait until the renewal. Certainly, you'll get a 30-day letter from the boards, mm -hmm. which will just basically say, you reported X, Y, Z. Tell us about it. Mm -hmm. And then you're, you know, it's just, a, it puts you in a little different position. But those are kind of things that we need to talk about based on when you come, when the client comes to us and when the charge happened. Those are all things to take into consideration as you evaluate when you report to the board, what the statute requires, what you report to the board, any proactive actions you might take that might better position you against the event of swift action by the board, which has the ability to do everything from dismiss your case to summarily suspend you. Right. And I think that's a great segue into, in, you know, you start talking about it right there is, and I think that's the kind of the next step. So you report, you know, we've kind of talked about that and kind of strategies and, you know, um, you know, making sure you're in alignment with your criminal attorney and there's been a lot of communication back and forth. But what's what's the next steps after that? What can so you report what can the board do next? I mean, is there or what can Medicaid and Medicare do next after after what's kind of the next step in the process then after after that part? So from a, li a licensing perspective, the boards then look at what you've reported, decide whether they need more information or not, and then they take action and they have the authority to refer it out to uh, for expedited settlement for further investigation, or they can just handle it. And as I said, that can be everything from dismissing it outright um, to summarily suspending you without notice. Um, well, they give you notice that you are suspended. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, that's what we want to avoid. And then once that gets resolved, you get down to a point where both sides are kind of in agreement, whether you come to a stipulation of some sort. Um, a stipulation, for example, might have admissions in it. And that's where we get back to it's important for us to be coordinating with your criminal attorney because if you're going to sign something that has admissions in it, I don't want my client signing something that's going to be detrimental to the criminal matter or even for that matter, an admission uh, that would be detrimental to their position in front of the okay. Medicare or Medicaid. So is, would you ever have to go to a hearing or is that ever possibly? Okay. Potentially. And that's, I mean, there are a number of ways you get to a hearing. One is the board recommends some form of discipline and we want to fight that so that discipline, either ask for something less or ask for no discipline at all or change the terms of it and we can't agree, it could end up at a hearing. You could end up with some kind of uh, pre-suspension hearing, for example. The board says, we're considering suspending you. Do you want a pre-suspension hearing where you can come present your case? Um, so there are different ways you could end up at a hearing. Uh, we try to try to get a resolution that you can be happy might not be the best word, but that you can, you can live with. be comfortable with, yeah. you can live with, yeah. um, short of a hearing because mm -hmm. nobody likes to be in a hearing. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so Greg, what about on the, uh, what's kind of the next steps the government can do on, uh, Medicare, Medicaid privilege yeah, side? So and pretty complicated because it really spans along a, a somewhat terrifying continuum. Um, <laughs> on one end you have outright exclusion from participation in the federal health care programs. And, you know, I'm going to just mention here that exclusion is, is a very different thing than 
uh, revocation or deactivation. Exclusion is a specific authority that is given to uh, the Office of the Inspector General. And they, uh, if you are excluded, which could be mandatory, like they, by statute, depending on what conviction you uh, take or receive, you know, it, mm-hmm. they may be required by statute to right. exclude you. Uh, other ones are permissive exclusions. So depending, you know, maybe a certain misdemeanor that falls into a range where they say, well, we have the authority to, but on a case-by-case scenario, we're going to look at seeing whether or not we're going to exclude you. Gotcha. Exclusion. So have some discretion on yes. this. But in some they don't, right? And the, the, depending on aggravating factors, um, it could be a few years to, I mean, there's exclusions that go up to like 90 plus years and they're, they're upheld. But, um, so that's exclusion and, and it, that's the worst one because it really, it isn't just, oh, you can't build Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE or any of the other healthcare programs, but this actually can have effect on you getting federal loans or having your kids get uh, loans for school because they're essentially wow. saying you cannot enter into any contract with the federal government because we don't trust you with federal money. Mm-hmm. So there, that's on one end, and then there's all the way up to Medicare. They handle their own revocation or deactivation, uh, which is a, an issue that you know is appealable, like we said, but you, you may lose. They could be overturned. Um, then also the states have their own authorities as well, so the Medicaid programs. Um, they can do, you know, you can have problems with just Medicare and not Medicaid. It's very possible. But uh, really, it's very, very fact-specific, and it just lies along this huge continuum that uh, pretty much anything can happen. So, so, so we've we've reported to the boards, we've reported to the government programs, and they've potentially made their decision all the way from suspension of your license to maybe a slap on the wrist, you know, uh, maybe a letter of admonition right or um something like that and then all the way to revocation deactivation under under medicare and medicaid and the federal programs what about what can you do then depending say you say you're and i think cheryl kind of touched on it a little bit already but what what would your next steps be then if you're not you're not pleased with the outcome with the government um, and what the decision they made um, or with what the decision the board made? What would be kind of your next uh, step um, or what, what could you do as, you know, as the physician or nurse or PA or in, in such a situation like this? Well, I'll just start with the kind of continue what I was saying about, you know, there are different authorities, so there are going to be different appeal rights. Um, Some of them are, you know, if you're facing a mandatory exclusion, your ability to overturn that on appeal, um, you know, it's very unlikely unless there was some sort of weird, strange technical mistake or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then otherwise, you know, you need to start thinking about if you're excluded or if you're not able to build Medicare or Medicaid, you got to think of Okay, we got to get through the process. Don't blow any deadlines. But then I really suggest people start thinking of: Are there any ways that you can work and continue your profession with not being involved with those programs? Because uh, it is a possibility um, that you know this could require a career change based on how bad it is. So uh, the key is really to make sure you're, you're not missing any deadlines and that you're being as um, effective in your arguments as possible. But Surely, once you get uh, excluded, 
deactivated or your billing privileges are revoked, you're facing a, a big uphill battle. Right. And so in some of those situations, you can appeal, um, as you were saying, and and, and and what is kind of I know it kind of ranges because, you know, we're we're really speaking generalities here. And, and just so everyone listening out there knows, you know, we're mainly focusing on Colorado. You know, every state has different rules and regulations for their for their boards and professions and, um, you know, and even different, uh, state Medicaid agencies have different rules and regs as well as, uh, Medicare, Medicare's, you know, obviously nationwide, but if, if you're getting into these situations, Medicare agencies and appeals, maybe things could be handled a little differently. Potentially, I don't know from region to region, things like that possibly, but but I don't know if you're able to touch on this at all, but maybe with an appeal, I'm assuming, you know, if you're if you're trying to appeal in a situation like that, I'm assuming it's very document heavy trying to you might be making some legal arguments too, maybe trying to prove that you I mean, I, I'm just kind of wondering if you have any examples of kind of that you can talk about at least in, in kind of what maybe an appeal would look like. For yeah. So usually um, you're not going to have any success in the uh, appeal authorities will not allow you to attack the underlying conviction. Right. Mm-hmm. You see that a lot where somebody's like, well, I didn't really even um, do the crime that I pled guilty to. I just pled guilty because it was the, the I wanted to, to end. Right. And that's just that's not going to go anywhere with mm-hmm. with the other okay. authorities. Uh, but you see that a lot with people trying to attack the, you know, they collaterally attack is what they call it, the underlying conviction. But a lot of times, if there is a way to kind of get out of it, we'd be looking at the either the extension of the deactivation mm-hmm. or the revocation. So maybe like how long that yeah, time frame is, maybe potentially long. limiting it to a certain time frame. Or- and, and again, they're so fact and uh, circumstance specific that, you know, um, each case there there may be more kind of hope but um a lot of times if you're in this situation to begin with you you're it's an uphill battle right Right. you need to be realistic about what you're what you could be facing so cheryl coming from now turning to the kind of the board side of that that same question we just talked to greg about how say you're unhappy with the the decision of the board i mean it's possible that that could happen i mean obviously you know, that's, you never want that, but I mean, what would, what would, what would you do in that situation or what would you recommend to clients it's, in that situation? It's possible and it's not infrequent. I mean, they, we don't always agree with the board um, and our clients certainly don't always like what the board does. Um, the board is important. It's important to remember the board's mission is to protect the public. So their mission is what do we need to do if we're going to let this person keep practicing to make sure they're safe. And that's why you have stipulations that have probation and, Um, or if they go as far as revoking a license because they don't think there's any way this person can practice and be safe. And then the secondly is, okay, we think they could be safe to practice, but under what context is discipline warranted? And so if you don't like the, what the board has recommended as your counsel, we're going to sit down and talk to you about why we think they went the way they did. Why, what do we think we have a shot at changing? And is it worth your time? You know, some clients want to do it because for the principal, like I'm not taking even the lowest form of discipline because I don't think I did anything wrong. Right. And even in cases where I agree, perhaps, well, I don't, I don't know if this warrants an LOA, but your chances of getting it dismissed or getting the letter of concern, which is not discipline, it's a confidential letter, 
are, are fairly remote. And so do you want to expend the resources to fight that? And um, what is an LOA? An LOA is the lowest form of discipline from the boards. It's a letter of admonition. And it is truly a letter that says we admonish you for gotcha. whatever action. They often roll it in with a stipulation. So you get a letter of admonition and you get some um, conditions may not be the right word, but maybe you're on probation for a year or you... Um, and, or they can do a probationary stipulation instead of a letter of admonition. Um, but if we really want to fight it and it gets to a point where you, we notify the board that we are going to, we disagree, we want to counter it, maybe we want to counter it or we want to speak with an AG about it, it the matter gets assigned to an assistant attorney general. And we can start negotiating that point. And we will do our best to negotiate to something you can live with, whether it's change the admissions, um, uh, changing the probationary terms, changing the length of the probation, stuff like that. Um, obviously, revocation, someone's going to probably want to fight that. Mm-hmm. Other forms of discipline, maybe not so much. But again, it's costly and there's a lot of things to consider because if you can't reach a resolution with the assistant attorney general, you're going to end up in a hearing. And a hearing is essentially a trial. And, you know, trials take you away from your practice, away from your family. It's um, is that a hearing in front of an AL administrative law judge yes. or is it a state court? Typically, or? it's in okay. front of an administrative law judge. Um, and there are appeal processes beyond that, too, which I'm not going to go into today. Sure. But, the you know, and there's always the issue where you kind of have the deck stacked against you once you go to a hearing because the board doesn't have to agree with the ALJ's recommendation. Oh, okay. Really? So, really? so, so the board doesn't have to agree. It looks like Greg is agreeing on that. I must so, have a similar. So, so you're, situation. so what you're saying is you go to, you go through this, you're appealing the board's decision to the AG or even higher to an ALJ in a hearing. And then the, the board doesn't have to. So you don't appeal follow. it to an AG. It gets assigned to an right. assistant and attorney general and you try and negotiate. And at some point the AG says, Hey, I'm going to have to file charges. And what they do is they file a complaint in the office of, Administ- of administrative courts. And then it's essentially a litigation matter. Mm-hmm. And so you're set for a hearing date, which is a trial and the ALJ hears all the evidence and then findings of facts and recommendation as to the action um, and the the it goes back to the board in generic terms it goes back to the board mm-hmm. and then the board does not have to take that recommendation interesting so and then you have appeal so options beyond that. that gotcha so that and that obviously as as greg was talking about earlier has huge whatever happens at the board or whatever the board decides, or when you get through all your appeals, that has a pretty big impact then on your ability to practice. It could. It could hit, depending on what it is. I mean, sometimes perhaps a client disagrees with a stipulation and you want to fight the stipulation. And when it comes down to it, if the ALJ makes a recommendation and the board maybe doesn't go with it, at that point they might say, okay, well, I can live with this. It's still letting me practice. But there are terms in some stipulations that make it really hard to practice. Mm-hmm. Like if you, you know, sometimes in a nursing stipulation, they'll say you can't work at night or you can't, mm-hmm. you know, you can't do these kind of shifts and someone's life doesn't allow for that. Right. Or there's sometimes 
one thing to be aware of is certain admissions might looked at look be looked at as something that would quote restrict your practice. Board certification organizations then say, well, that's a practice restriction. We're going to revoke your board certification. These are all and th- or something with Medicare I might get end up triggering a problem with Medicare. So, you know, there are stipulations that plenty of practitioners have that do not affect their ability to practice. If you can find a job that would be supportive, for example, if you have a practice monitor requirement in your probationary stipulation where someone has to review a certain number of charts and send reports to the board periodically, there are plenty of practitioners out there that do that because it doesn't affect their ability to do the work. It's just that someone has to come in and review it. So there are different types of terms that can be onerous, but still allow you to practice. But we have the same kind of conversations Greg was talking about, where occasionally it's like, well, if these are the stipulations you end up with, think about whether this is a profession you can continue to practice in. Right. And, and sometimes people don't realize that there could be even things that we're not talking about that have implications. It could be your employment agreement with whoever you're right. working Good for. Point. Um, it could be some sort of bylaws. There could be requirements and bylaws to have uh, Medicare, Medicaid billing privileges or, mm-hmm. or uh, something like that. So there could be other issues that could, in your circumstances, come up. Uh, but I think that one thing um, that kind of sticks out through all this is the tremendous amount, uh, fair or not, of discretion that um, I, I wouldn't say the other side is, but you know the boards or uh, Medicare and Medicaid or their contractors that they have in uh, applying these regulations and their authorities to you. And you know Cheryl mentioned earlier, she said, well, you know, we got to sit, we got to think about, okay what, you know, first of all is acceptable, but what also can we actually change? Mm-hmm. And we find so often that um, you can't take a discretionary issue in front of an ALJ and saying, hey, ALJ, the contractor, they didn't have to do this, but they did, you know, because the ALJ is going to say, well, it's their authority. They acted within the, the lines of their authority. So mm-hmm. a lot of times it, you know, as upsetting as it could be, um, it's just that's an extra layer of difficulty in, in getting some sort of resolution out of here that works for people. Um, and then just one other thing that I thought about as, as we were talking about this is um, a lot of people have, this has been news to, you know, the enforcement of this has been news to our firm just in actually it happening. Uh, but as part of the Affordable Care Act, uh, the government said that if there are any restrictions on licenses, that medic, state Medicaid agencies are required to make sure that those providers um, are not like renewed or revalidated. So we've started to see some providers uh, come to us saying, hey, they didn't revalidate my license mm-hmm. or my privileges because I have a restriction on my license. And this privileges is all- Privileges of Medicare, right? Yeah, right. And um, well, and, and Medicaid and now Medicaid. because it's part of, it's, it's crazy because they say Medicaid agencies are required to make sure that physicians don't have restrictions. And that used to not really be that huge of a deal because they weren't acting on it. But now we're starting to see with these providers, this is just in the last couple of months, they're coming in saying, well, hey, they're they're not um, renewing my privileges with Medicaid because I have some sort of small, what they consider a restriction. So restriction. these are, uh, it go, just goes to the point of, um, there is so much, uh, discretion in a lot of parts of this law and in the application of the law that um, it can be very confusing, but there are a lot of uh, potential implications. Well, 
I think this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you guys joining us. I think it's been very valuable information for everybody. If you guys had, I'm going to ask you one more final question. If you had, if you had one piece of advice, you know, or, or one tip or recommendation, you just thought, you know, you know, to, to throw out there to everyone listening, uh, you know, obviously we always say that you should consult your, you know, your attorney or your, your local attorney or whoever you're using or find an attorney in your state. Cause all these laws and regulations can be different in other states, but what would, you know, if you had one piece of advice, one takeaway, what would, what would that be? You took mine. <laughs> I was, I mean, it's, it may sound cliche, but I do think consulting with an attorney is an important part of this process. And for all of the reasons that we discussed, because it is so much easier to front load your report or your response to the boards, for example, with what happened than to be working an uphill battle after the board has determined it's going to discipline you. Um, so you know, while there are resources available online, I encourage everyone to look at those resources. It certainly is a good idea to talk to someone, uh, counsel who has been in front of those boards and kind of can give you a heads up of what to expect and strategize with you about how to do the response and, yeah. and the report to them about what happened. Right. I'm sorry I took yours, but I think it was a little yeah. different what you said there. <laughs> you, you, you added a lot more to that. <laughs> and Greg, what would, you, uh, what would you say? So I would say that, you know, it's educating yourself. Um, you, there are a lot of things that you can do on your own to educate yourself. There's a lot of resources out there um, available to at least, you know, man, be able to manage your expectations. Absolutely, there are uh, individuals and, and, and entities that are... Uh, improperly revoked or deactivated or um, excluded and there are ways to fight back but in the general context of these things remember that if you do take a get some sort of felony or misdemeanor conviction there are going to be uh, implications because this is a, a, an extremely um, regulated industry and it's just it's part of um, what you signed up for when you got into it and, and from the Medicare and Medicaid perspective, yeah, maybe you can continue to work and, and do what you want in, in your job without being involved with them at all. But typically that's not the way that works. Right. So it's just uh, being able to manage expectations and know that there may be, you know, some things that you really can't, you, you can't win on because yeah. convictions are pretty serious business. Yeah. Well, thank you guys again for joining us. We really appreciate it. I hope it was a good experience for you guys, and you'll be back on future episodes. <laughs> and uh, yeah. thank you guys again. Thank you. Thanks, man. Well, that's our show. Thank you to everyone for listening. For more information, visit us at celaw.com. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or comments, please feel free to send those along. You can find both myself and the firm at celaw.com on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thanks so much. <laughs> Stay tuned for future shows. We have some exciting guests and topics lined up. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> All right, here we go. I'm going to get better at this, I promise. Okay. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not for the purpose of providing legal advice or legal opinions on specific facts or circumstances. This podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with the listener, and the listener should not act upon the information discussed in this podcast without seeking professional advice. 
This podcast is not intended to be an advertising or solicitation of legal services. Because this podcast is recorded on a specific date, the information discussed may become outdated by the time the listener has downloaded or listened to it. Lastly, the listener should be aware that laws and regulations are constantly changing and are often different in each state.